1918, a man named Paul Harvey was born. And that name might be familiar to some in here, but probably not familiar to a number in here. Paul Harvey spent the majority of his adult life, starting at the age of 15, on the radio. And what Paul Harvey was most famous for, especially to those of us in my generation who listened to him, was bringing background story and context into some of the most beloved stories of history and culture and making them come alive in a way that we never even knew was possible. And Paul Harvey would fill in gaps of understanding and stories with history that would bring to us a new light and a new picture and a new understanding of different things. If you ever heard Paul Harvey on the radio, you, you know what I'm talking about. He would begin to tell a story that was familiar to you about a person or about an event in history. And he would talk and just when you thought you knew where he was going, he would stop. And then he'd give you an infomercial for a heater about the size of a cereal box that would heat your entire home. And the radio would come back on and Paul Harvey would continue the story, but he would go in a completely different and unexpected direction. He would begin to bring to light things that you didn't know about a particular person or about a particular event that filled in a full picture of that moment in history. And as he would wrap up the story, who heard Paul Harvey on the radio? Well, then you know what he says when he wraps up the story, right? And now you know the rest of the story. I couldn't get Paul Harvey out of my head all week long as I was reading Judges chapter six, seven, and eight. I kept asking myself, how would Paul Harvey deal with this story? How would he tell this story? You see, this morning we pick up probably, if not the most familiar, one of the two most familiar stories in the book of Judges. Judges chapter six, seven, and eight is concerned with the story of Gideon. Now, doubtless, if you have any familiarity at all with the Bible, if you were read stories from a children's Bible as a a child, but you've never actually picked up the Bible and read it for yourself, you are familiar at least with the name Gideon. And you're familiar with how God used this man, Gideon, and his mighty army of 300 men to defeat the enemies of God's people. And you're familiar with his story. But you're probably not familiar with the rest of the story. See, most books about Gideon, most stories about Gideon, even most, story, most sermons about Gideon stop there with God using Gideon to defeat the Midianites, but that's not the end of the story. In fact, the purpose of the story is not for you and I to marvel at the heroism and valor of Gideon in defeating the Midianites. The, the purpose of the story is for you and I to realize how God is continually faithful to his people in spite of their weakness. But weakness is not something we ever associate with Gideon because we don't know the rest of the story. So this morning, we're going to begin a a two-week journey through the the Gideon story. And what I pray will be the expectation and what I pray will be the fruit of spending time with this story and the, the fruit of our time this morning is that God will help us to see maybe for the first time, how, how, just, how just like Gideon we really are. And that might sound silly to some of you because some of you may be familiar with Gideon through the, the whole idea of, you know what, I need to be more like Gideon, God's deliverer. Well, the reality of it is you're already like Gideon. You're more like Gideon than you may realize. And my hope and expectation is that you will see just how like Gideon you really are so that like Gideon, you might marvel at God's continued faithfulness to his people in the presence of their weakness. That you might marvel and stand in awe 
at the fact that God delights to put his glory and power on display in the land of human weakness. That's really what the story of Gideon is all about, at least the first part. Next week, we'll pick up the second part, and you'll hear the rest of the story. So this morning, we're going to start by just understanding a bit of the context in which God calls Gideon. We're going to meet Gideon and the unique calling God gives Gideon and how he meets him. But then we're going to see three different episodes in Gideon's life that put on display God's continued desire to exalt his grace and exalt his power in the midst of the weakness of his people, in the midst of the weakness of his servants. So if you've got your Bible and you're in Judges chapter six now, let's just start with the first verse. And here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna read different sections as we go. I wish I could read the entire thing verse by verse, but it would take up at least half of our time this morning just reading that. So we're gonna read pieces and a lot of it's gonna be familiar to you and where we need to pull out particular things in the story to help shed light on it, so to speak, we'll do that and then we'll work through different things. So let's start with just the context, how, how we begin to meet Gideon and what's going on. So chapter six, verse one, we read something that should be familiar to us. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now that is a a refrain that we hear over and over again. So if you've been with us at all going through this book, that should be familiar. That's the start of the cycle that we get with each new judge. And here's the thing, God does not intend for you to gloss over that. If any of you in here are teachers, and even if any of you in here are parents, you know that repetition is one of the most powerful tools that God gives teachers. Repeating something puts emphasis on something and God is putting emphasis on this throughout its repetition in each cycle because God wants his people to understand the cycle of the sin that has gripped their heart. That though he continues to show grace and deliver them, they continue to turn back to the idols of their day. Unless you and I skim past this and even shake our finger at Israel thinking, how could they do that? God intends for you and I to slow down and realize that we're far more like Israel than we may realize. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. This is the consequence of that cycle of that sin. God gives his people over in judgment to different oppressions. Now, the oppression that God's people are gonna suffer at the hands of Midian is different than anything we've read before. This isn't a military oppression, a violent oppression. It's an agricultural terrorism. It's an oppression of fear and terror. It's very unique. Listen to how the writer records it. Verse two, at the hand of Midian, Israel was overpowered. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. They'd leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels couldn't be counted, so that they laid waste to the land as they came. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So every harvest season, you can get the picture. The Midianites, the Amalekites, this coalition of peoples would camp on the edge of the land and they would invade Israel like locusts. They weren't seeking to destroy the people of Israel. They were seeking to destroy their harvest. They took all their crops, took all their animals. And one writer was trying to paint a picture of this to help you understand the context of what was going on. And and he said this, you don't need much imagination to grasp what wave after wave of this sort of total destruction year after year would do to the morale of God's people. 
When the invasion was over, the rest of the year was lived out in poverty, which it had caused. Not only materially, but emotionally and psychologically, the people of God were reduced to utter destruction. They were living in in dens in the strongholds of the mountains. Only then, after seven years of this treatment, did they actually humble themselves sufficiently to call upon the Lord. Seven years of this agricultural terrorism, this fear put in them by the Midianites, this pillaging of their land, these seven years lived in cycles of of poverty and fear at the hand of the Midianites. Only then did they cry out to the Lord. And what they cried out for was deliverance. They wanted God's strong hand to step in. They wanted power. They wanted miracle. And do you know what God gave them? He gave them a sermon. He gave them a prophet. One, I think it was a pastor, I think I heard him preach it one time, I think I read it, I think I heard it one time. He said, this would be the same thing as you breaking down on the side of the highway and calling AAA, and instead of them sending a tow truck and a mechanic, they sent a philosopher. God's people wanted God to step in and solve their situation, to relieve them from the circumstance, but God wanted to interpret their circumstance for them. He wanted them to better understand why they were going through what they were going through. So you see in verse seven, when they cried out to the Lord on the account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet. And he said something that should be familiar. He said, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I'm the Lord, your God. I delivered you, I rescued you, I made a covenant with you, I made you my people. I said, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but here it is again, you have not obeyed my voice. That repeated pattern of God's people forgetting the Lord. Not forgetting his name, not forgetting all that he had done, not forgetting the facts of who he was and what they had done in the past, but who God had been for them and what that meant for who they were and how they lived their lives and God in light of his promise no longer mattered. It didn't shape them anymore. They had forgotten him and given their hearts over to the gods of the Canaanites and they were no longer obeying the Lord. And they wanted God to relieve them of their oppression, but God wanted them to better understand why they were suffering the way they were. Now, when you read this, you, you get to the end of this sermon and, and you hear God rehearse all that he had done, the covenant that he had made, the way that he delivered them. And you hear the prophet say, but you haven't obeyed my voice. And what do you expect to come next? Therefore, because I did this and you've done this, therefore. But that's not what happens. Instead, we, we're introduced to our deliverer. Instead of the therefore of judgment we would expect, God gives deliverance. But this deliverer that we're going to meet this morning is not what you or I would ever order up if we had a menu of options and we're in Israel's circumstance. I said, you know what? Let me pick who I I want or who I think would be able to get the job done. The guy that we're gonna meet this morning is not what you would expect. Look at verse 11. We're gonna meet this deliverer here. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And now we're in the third service this morning and no one has laughed when I read that. 
You need to realize that when this would have been read when God's people gathered or this story was rehearsed amongst the family of God's people throughout the generations, whoever was telling the story or whoever was reading the scroll, they would have paused right there and given everybody listening a chance to snicker and laugh at what had just been said. See, there's comedy going on here when we meet this deliverer. He's not what we would expect. If you imagine it like a movie and the camera panning out, you you find this young man trying to thresh out wheat in the middle of a wine press, and and there's humor in this when you can see the picture. You see, to beat out wheat or to thresh wheat in those days, you would take all of your wheat out into an open place, preferably up on a hill somewhere, and you would have a pitchfork of sorts, and you would take that wheat and you would throw it up into the air so that the wind would catch it. And when the wind caught it, the chaff, the useless part, the lighter part, would blow away and be separated from the heavier part, the germ, that would fall down to the ground. And you do it repeatedly over and over again, separating the useless from the useful. But Gideon's in a wine press. See, a wine press was made up of two big pits that were dug into the ground, deep pits. One pit is where you would pour all the grapes so that you could smash it and press it. That pit would be connected to another pit next to it that would actually be dug deeper and it would be connected by a little channel so that the juice would run from the pit where you would be smashing the grapes down into the other pit. So when we go to meet this deliverer, this one who God is going to use, we find him sitting in a wine, standing in a wine press in a pit in the ground, throwing up wheat that isn't going to catch any wind at all. And what can you imagine that that wheat is doing every single time he throws it up? It's falling back down on his head. And so the angel of the Lord shows up, and do you know what he does? He doesn't immediately announce his arrival. He takes a seat under a tree and watches. He's just watching this guy in a wine press, throwing grain up, trying to, trying to separate it while it falls down on his head over and over again. Why? Because he's afraid. He's afraid to go out and do it in the way that he's supposed to do it because he's afraid that if he goes out and does it, he'll be seen, and they'll come and they'll take it. So in fear, he's down in a wine press trying to do what he can only do out in the open up on a hill. And the angel's amused by it. And after he watches for a few minutes, he greets him. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. It's hard not to hear sarcasm in the angel's greeting. But Gideon, he wasn't impressed with the angel. And he wasn't impressed with the way he was greeted. Verse 13 says, Gideon looked at the angel and said to him, please, my Lord. And that's, that's not tiny Tim. Oh, please, my Lord. This is, please. Seriously? If the Lord's with us, well, why has this happened to us? We're all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us. Saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord's forsaken us and given us in the hand of Midian. He said, oh, please. If God's so good, if God's so powerful, if God's so faithful, why do we keep being ravaged by the Midianites? See, this is why God sent a prophet to his people when they cried out for a miracle. Gideon is just giving voice to the hearts of all of Israel. They didn't understand why they were being oppressed. They thought it was God that was doing it to them, not a result of their own sin. They were blaming God on their circumstances rather than recognizing that this circumstance was a response of their own sin. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him, looked at Gideon, sitting in this wine press trying to thresh wheat. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? The angel of the Lord is calling Gideon into the service of the Lord. And Gideon, verse 15, 
looks at him and says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, one of the best lines in the entire story, but I'll be with you, and you shall strike Midian as one man. So the writer introduces us to our deliverer, and far from seeming like a mighty man of valor, he seals, seems more like a fearful, gutless man hiding in a wine press trying to thresh wheat. When face to face with an angel of the Lord promised that God would be with him and sent out in the service of the Lord, he said, ah, I don't know. I got 10,000 reasons why that's probably not the case. And from this point forward, God gives us, through the story of Gideon, three beautiful pictures of his delight in showing off his strength and his glory in the midst of the weakness of his people. This is the first one. This is the first little episode. In fact, we see here and, and here throughout the story just how much God delights to flex his muscle through the weakness of his people. Look at verse 17. The angel of the Lord he tells Gideon, calls him into the service of the Lord. And, and Gideon's not sure. He needs reassurance. Look at what happens. Gideon says to him, look, if I've found favor in your eyes, show me a sign. A sign that it's you who speak with me. Please don't depart here until I come to you and, and bring my present and set it before you. And the angel said, I'll stay and, and return. Gideon's like pinching himself. Like, if this is real, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stay put. I'm going to go get a present and I'm going to bring it back. And if I've really found favor in your eyes and you're really who you say you are, then you're going to stay and I'm going to bring my present to you. And you can keep reading the story. It's quite a present that Gideon brings. He brings a meal of an entire goat, cakes made from a bushel of wheat, pots of, of broth, of soup back to the Lord. It's a huge meal he brings back. And, and listen to what happens. Listen to what happens. First, let's pick up in verse 19. He put the meat in the basket and the broth in a pot and he brought them to, to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And Gideon did so. And then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And look at this, fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. He put the food on the rock and covered it with broth. He didn't build a fire to cook it. Fire sprung up from the rock, much like a bush at one point in the history of God's people engulfed by fire. Gideon realized who it was that he was dealing with. He should have understood the fullness of the promise that the Lord would be with him as he calls him into his service but rather than reassuring him in confidence, it, it spins Gideon's fear back out of control. Verse 22, Gideon perceived that he was with the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O, o Lord, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And Gideon knew that no one was to see the Lord face to face. And anyone who saw the Lord face to face surely must die. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Don't fear, you shall not die. And so Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and he called it, the Lord is peace. And so as you read this and we meet Gideon and we get a picture of his personality, but we get a picture of God's grace coming down to meet him in the midst of his circumstance, it would stand to reason that God had done enough through the angel of the Lord to convince Gideon that his word was sure, that his word was true, that his promise to be with him would be true. But Gideon's Gideon. 
And there's something else that he needs to do. God has his first task of obedience for Gideon in his service. Verse 25, that night the Lord said to him, now take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that's beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. And take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. You learn something else about Gideon here. His dad was a priest of Baal. The region's altars to Baal and Asherah were in Gideon's backyard. And so the first act of obedience and service to the Lord, having been called into the service of the Lord by the angel of God, was to tear down these altars in his backyard. The worship of Gideon's family, the worship of Gideon's heart had been blended, and God wouldn't have it. Gideon's allegiance needs to be made known, and it needs to be made known clearly. When you read the story, Gideon's still Gideon. Fearfully, he obeyed. Verse 27, Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, Gideon did it by night. Now, here's the thing. We'll come back to this down the road, but here's the thing. God asked for one essential thing from Gideon, and that was obedience, to tear down the altars. Heroism was optional. Gideon was still Gideon. And he did it fearfully, but he obeyed. And as you read the story, you get a sense of why he might have been a little afraid. When the people woke up and saw the altars had been destroyed, that the Asherah pole was being used as firewood now, they wanted blood. Whoever did this had to die. And however it got back to them that it was Gideon, they wanted Gideon's head on a platter. But Gideon gets help from the most unexpected place. Providentially, in the hand of God, Gideon gets help from his dad, who had been the priest of Baal, whose altars were torn down and destroyed and set on fire by his own son. Listen to what his dad says in verse 31. Joash, Gideon's dad, said to everyone who stood against Gideon, ready to kill Gideon for what he has done, he says to all of them, will you contend for Baal? Will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by the morning. Why? If Baal's a God, let him contend for himself. If he's really a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. So here's our our first picture of our deliverer. Far from the captain of fearlessness and, and valor, Gideon seems far more fearful than faithful and far more gutless than great. But maybe now, having come face to face with the angel of the Lord and lived, after having brought his presence and seemed it consumed the touch of the angel of the Lord's staff, after having been spoken to by the angel of the Lord and promised that the Lord will be with him and called into the service of the Lord, after having been given this providential protection by his dad through the hand of God, maybe now, maybe now Gideon will know. Maybe now Gideon will believe that God is really with him as he had said. But Gideon still Gideon. And so we get episode two, more grace for the gutless. Verse 33, all the Midianites and all the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. So the next years come, it's harvest time again 
And the Midianites and their coalition have come to the edge of the land, just like they do every single year. And they're getting ready to prepare to come into Israel, to ravage the crops, to take the harvest, to take the animals. And in this, they're expecting it to be like every other year. No resistance put up at all. They're all going to run to the dens and the strongholds in the mountains. We're going to come and we're going to take everything and we're going to go back home. But what they don't know is that God has raised up a deliverer for his people. As C.S. Lewis writes throughout the Chronicles of Narnia, indeed, Aslan has been on the move. The Midianites just aren't aware of it. Verse 34, probably my favorite verse in the entire story. The coalition is camped against the edge of the land, but... The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Now, there's something beautiful that's lost in translation here. There's something very similar for any of you that read the email this week that Shelby sent out about the carol that we sang together this morning, God rest ye merry gentlemen. You know the story of something being lost in translation. But that's really not what the carol originally intended. How many of you read the email? I'm not going to ruin the story for you. You need to go read the story. And you'll realize that the intention of that carol originally, we lost in translation. It's actually God make you mighty, comma, gentlemen. Go read the story. The whole carol will make a whole lot more sense when you know the story. There's something lost in translation in this verse that paints a picture of what's actually happening here that we miss sometimes. If you were to go read a dictionary like I did this this week uh, about the Hebrew being used here, because I can't read it myself, I have to go read a dictionary. The dictionary says that the verb here is suggestive. It actually is meant to be read to clothe with. A more literal translation would be this. The spirit of the Lord clothed itself with Gideon. What an image. Episode two, the Midianites, the whole coalition, they've come to the edge of the land. They're preparing to ravage the land just like they do every year, but they don't know that the spirit of the Lord has clothed itself with Gideon. So Gideon sounds the trumpet and the peoples come and the peoples rally. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh. They were called to follow. He sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali and they all went up to meet them. Now for the first time in the seven year oppression of the Midianites, God's people are gonna stand ready to defend themselves. But Gideon is still Gideon and God knows it. Look at verse 36. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on the ground, then I'll know that you'll save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Now, he repeats something there that's very important for understanding the context of what's happening here. Twice Gideon says, as you have said. The fear in Gideon's heart is is surrounding whether or not what God has said is really true. God has said, you will lead my people against the Midianites. As one man, you will defeat the Midianites. Now, on the precipice of battle with the Midianites and their coalition of people ready to come into the land, Gideon's like, eh, did you really say that? I need some reassurance. So here's what I want you to do. And you read in the story as you keep going. Verse 38, it was so. When Gideon rose early the next morning to squeeze the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, this is a very important verse in understanding this too. If you've ever been tempted to throw a fleece out your window overnight, this is very important. Verse 39, 
Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me, but let me speak just once more. He knew what he was about to do. He wasn't supposed to do. It's very important for understanding this. Gideon knew what he was about to ask God is something he wasn't supposed to ask God. He knew he wasn't supposed to put the Lord as God to test, but he does it anyway. Please, this time, let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. Now, I wanted to spend an entire morning on this story because everyone's familiar with the fleece. And everyone, if they're honest, at some point in their journey with the Lord since the time that God has saved them has had some moment in their life when they have created a fleece of their own. You know you've done it. If this person calls me, then I'll know. I had this dream last night. I don't think it was the the food that I ate. I think it was God telling me to do this. If God wakes me up three times between the hours of, of four, five, and six, then I'll know. Whatever it might be, we've all tried to put God to the test by tying his hands that we might be able to discern whether or not what we're about to do is what we're supposed to do. But you need to realize something. That's not what Gideon did. That's why those, that phrase that he repeated, as you have said, is so important. Gideon needed assurance in that his faith, was, his faith was weak and he wanted assurance from the Lord about what God had said, not whether or not what he was about to do was what he was supposed to do. God has never intended for this whole fleece thing to be a model for how his people would understand and discern his will. Realize this, even Gideon knew what he was doing he wasn't supposed to do, which is why he said, don't get mad at me. Don't let your anger burn against me. The best way of understanding what Gideon is doing here is very similar to the man who came to Jesus and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but but help my unbelief. Is this what you've really said? God in his kindness, and you're gonna see it over and over again in the story. God in his kindness doesn't condemn Gideon for his fear doesn't condemn Gideon for his doubt, but he condescends to help him and assure him. God proved himself and his word to Gideon, but he did it out of more of a picture of his kindness than Gideon's faith. These tests came from fear, not confidence. And God in his kindness reassured Gideon. But God wanted to make something else very clear. He would not share his glory with anyone else. Lest you think Gideon had hit the the lowest point, that he could not get any weaker, God's going to make him even weaker so that his glory and his strength might shine ever brighter. Having reassured Gideon of his word, chapter 7 comes, and it's probably the most familiar part of the entire story. God's people are prepared to go to battle against the Midianites who are encamped on the edge of the land. And God says, you know what? Not quite yet. 132,000 Midianites are ready to come on their camels and ravage the land. And the Israelites have about 32,000. And God says, you know what? Here's the thing. Read what God says in in verse two of chapter seven. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Why? Lest they boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. Lest you get confused at who's responsible for the victory that's about to occur, here's what we're going to do. I know they have 132,000 and you only have 32,000. It seems impossible already. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at your army and tell everybody who's afraid to go to battle to go home. 
So Gideon says, anyone afraid to go to battle, go home. 22,000 go home. The Lord says, yeah, not yet. I want you to take them all down to the river and tell them to get a drink of water. And anyone that kneels down and drinks the water, tell them to go home. 9,700 go home. Gideon is left with 300 soldiers. And verse nine says, that same night, the Lord said to him, now, now arise and go down against the camp for I've given it into your hand. It's time to fight. Lest you get confused, who's really going to do this? Lest you get confused, whose might is really going to be put on display here? Now you're ready. When you couldn't get any weaker, now you're ready. But listen to the grace of God and what comes next. My goodness, how well does God know you? How well do you think God knows you? God knows Gideon. God loves Gideon. And knowing Gideon and the fear in his own heart, listen to what God says in verse 10. But if you're afraid to go down, here's what I want you to do. If you're afraid now with these 300 men to go into battle against the Midianites, I, I've told you that I'm with you. I'm told you that you're going to go in might and you're going to defeat them as one man. Why? Because it's my might that's going to go with you. I've reassured you everywhere along the way that my promise is sure and my word is true. But if you're still afraid, and I know you are, here's what I want you to do. Go down to the edge of the camp. Read this. Go down with your servant. And here's what you're going to hear. You're going to hear someone say something so that afterward your hands will be strengthened to go down against the armies. So Gideon went down with his servant Purah to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. In his fear, God doesn't condemn Gideon. He loves him. He's done so much to strengthen Gideon already and to assure Gideon of who it is he's dealing with and what the promises to him are, but he knows Gideon and he loves Gideon. And so Gideon obeys and he goes down to the edge of the camp of the Midianites. And he's prepared to hear something. In verse 13, and it tells you, it says, verse 13, Gideon came and behold, there was a man telling a dream to his comrade. So Gideon sneaks down with his servant to the edge of the Midianites' camp and he overhears two Midianite soldiers talking and one of them had a dream. And he tells his friend, his comrade, that I had a dream and a cake of barley tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that I fell and it turned upside down and the tent lay flat. God gave this Midianite comrade an interpretation. His comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God's given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. All that God has done to reassure him, all that God has done to build his confidence in his word, Gideon's still afraid and God still loves him and God sends him down to overhear this dream and now Gideon's confident in God's word. So he comes back to the camp and he tells the armies of Israel to get themselves prepared because now it's time to go fight. And do you know what they go to fight with? Go read the story this week. They go to fight with trumpets and an empty jar with a torch in it. 
And they surround the camp of the Midianites at night. And at a certain hour of the watch, Gideon's going to give the signal and they're all going to blow the trumpets and frighten the Midianites. And they're all going to break the jars and the torches are going to be there. And listen to what happens when they do what Gideon tells them to do. When the 300 blew their trumpets, verse 22, the Lord, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. Lest you get confused about whose might is about to be flexed, let me just get you to the lowest point I can get you. Let me just realize how weak you really are. The Lord had the Midianites go to battle with themselves. And let me ask you this. Is this the Gideon you grew up with? Is this the Gideon that you remember? This mighty man of valor that every time you learn about, you're trying to figure out, how am I supposed to be more like Gideon? Have you ever realized you're already Gideon? That's the point of the story. We've butchered the story for decades. We don't have to figure out how to be more like Gideon. We're already Gideon. Our hearts are already divided in their loyalty. We already are prone like Gideon and his family and the rest of Israel to live a life of spiritual amnesia, having forgotten God and who he is and what he's done for us through his son and our heart be divided. And with one part of our heart say, I serve the Lord with my whole heart, but over here, our lives are given over to the gods of our own day. Gods of beauty and materialism and sensuality and power, whatever it may be. We live with a divided heart just like Gideon. And as we've seen over and over and we'll keep seeing through the book of Judges, whenever spiritual amnesia sets in, whenever that forgetfulness sets in, confidence in God and confidence in his sure word of promise to his people begins to erode. And when confidence begins to erode, it doesn't create a vacuum, fear sets in. Fear begins to overtake the heart. When fear begins to overtake the heart, just like Gideon, you and I will begin to hold on too tight to the things of this world. Having come face to face with the angel of the Lord and been reassured of God's word to him, his heart still gripped too tight to the things of his life. Fearing his friends and fearing his family and what they may think and what they may say and what they may do. Gideon obeys, but he obeys in darkness. You and I are a whole lot more like Gideon than you would ever want to imagine. You and I live too tight in fear surrounding what people might think of us if they really knew what we believed. If I really acted in obedience in this circumstance, I'm afraid of what may actually happen to me. The consequences that may come from being a follower of Christ in this particular day and age and fear begins to grip into our heart. When forgetfulness sets in, confidence erodes and fear begins to squeeze. And when fear begins to set in and we grip too tight on the things of this earth, something else begins to happen. It's, it's no small occurrence that you and I will begin to question the sure promise of God's word. When fear sets in, our heart begins to say, you know what, did, did he really say? If you, if you really said that, I, I need you to show me. And not just in these little things about what job to take or, or our big things like who to marry or whether we should move here, whether we should do this or do that. Not just in those things, but you and I will begin to fear and in fear begin to doubt God's sure word of promise to us in his love for us. I know what you've said. 
I've read it, I've memorized it, I can say it to myself, but I'm not sure I really believe it. If you really love me, then I need you to do whatever. If you really loved me, then you would fill in the blank. Friends, when forgetfulness begins to set in, and confidence in God and his sure word of promise is eroded and fear begins to grip our hearts. The sure word of God's promise of his faithfulness and love to us is put into question. We find ourselves looking for more confirmation. Saints, there's no greater confirmation and assurance of God's love for us and the sure faithfulness of his word of promise to us than in him sending his son to die on the cross in our place for our sins. There is no greater word of assurance. There's nothing else that God can do in addition to show us his love for us, his faithfulness to us, the sureness of his word for us than what he did in sending his son to die in our place for our sins. There's nothing more sure he can do. And when you and I live in a forgetfulness of who he is and what he has done and what that means for who we actually are, and our confidence in the sureness of his word erodes, we find ourselves searching for some kind of confirmation of his love. But he's giving us nothing more. He can't give us anything more than what he's given us in his son. Proof that he will always be with us. But here's the thing that will jump off the page if you just begin to slow down as you read the story. If you slow down to read the story, you'll come face to face with the fact that, you know what? You are Gideon. You're more like him than you would ever imagine. But what you will begin to see when you begin to own that is just how faithful and kind and patient and gracious God is with his people. Just how patient he is with us even in our fears. See, all these little tests that Gideon kept putting the word of the Lord to, they weren't models for us in how we relate to God, but they begin to form a backdrop on which the patient, gracious love of God will begin to shine. Over and over and over again, God doesn't condemn Gideon for his fear and his weakness. God condescends down to reassure him of his love. See, this isn't a story, as you might have heard before, about how, valor, how, how much valor and, and confidence and greatness Gideon had and how you and I need to figure out how to be more like Gideon. No, we're already like Gideon. And the point of the story in the hands of God is for you and I to stand amazed at God's continual desire to make his glory and might known through the weakness of his human servants. That's the story. It's always been the way of the Lord to make his power perfect, to put his power on display in weakness. You see, it was the power of God and the glory of God in all of its fullness that was put on display in technicolor display as his son took on flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. It was his power, it was his love that was put on display when his son's body was nailed to a cross and on his body was placed our sin, our idolatry, our fears, our insecurities. 
It was his love, it was his glory, it was his power that was put on display on that cross in what seemed like the greatest display of human weakness, the most shameful and humiliating and painful death imaginable. In that moment on that cross, God flexed his power as he executed his justice in light of our sin and put on display for a watching world his faithful love towards his people his treasured possession. God has always delighted. It has been the way of the Lord from the beginning to make his power perfect and to put his glory on display in the context of weakness. God's continued even from there to put his power on display in the context of the weakness of his servants. The Apostle Paul, you'll be familiar with this. He said, you know what? Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You're Gideon. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. But because of him, because of God and his wisdom, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Why? So that as it was written, let no one boast, but boast in the Lord. Friends, God was mighty through Gideon. That's the story. And by grace, God continues to be mighty through his servants God continues to put his might on display through you. So when we gather together and we sing and we celebrate and we remember the gracious word, the sure word of our Lord to us, and then we're sent out from here as his people, we're not sent out from here to go and to be his people in this place in the strength of our own might, in the strength of our own wisdom. Does not God send us? Just like the angel of the Lord told Gideon, does not God send you? Does not God send us? You see, the only reason Gideon could go was because he was going in the might of the Lord. And the same holds true for you and I. When God sends us out from this place this morning, he sends us out as his ambassadors. And we don't go in the strength of our own wisdom. We don't go in the strength of our own power and might. We go in the strength of his knowing that he's made us his own, that he's given us his sure word of promise. He's put on display for us his commitment to his word and his faithfulness to his people. He's given us his spirit that raised his son from the dead and just as he gave Gideon his orders to go, he's given us our orders to go as well. And just as he promised Gideon that he would be with him as he went, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, go, but go knowing this, I'm always with you. I'm always with you, even to the end of the age. You don't go alone, and you don't go in your own might. Friends, God knows. He knows you. He knows your weakness. He knows your need for reassurance. And in his kindness, he continues in grace to give us reminders of his faithfulness to us. 
See, there's this part in the beginning of the story of Gideon when we're learning who Gideon really is that we see that Gideon realizes he's come face to face, not just with an angel of the Lord, but he's come face to face with the Lord himself. He knows that no one who comes face to face with the Lord can live. But in that moment, the Lord assured Gideon that here he wasn't going to die. And in gratitude for the grace that God had given him in that moment, Gideon built an altar and he named it, the Lord is peace. That he might always remember that the Lord in grace had made a way for Gideon to come face to face and not die. And the writer says that even to this day, when they wrote the book of Judges, that altar still stood that God's people might remember the time when God made a way for his servant to come face to face with him and in grace he spared him. The key to that moment is understanding that the one that Gideon came face to face with was the Lord himself, the one who would one day come and make a way for us to be at peace with God through his own sacrifice. This morning, as we respond to God's word, in his kindness and grace, God gives us a reminder, us a memorial of sorts as we receive communion together to remember the one who came and through his sacrifice in our place for our sin has made a way for us to not only know with full assurance the love of God for his people, but to know that now there's peace. Peace between us and peace between God. And knowing this peace and living in the confidence of this faithfulness and love, we can go. We can go and be God's ambassadors, to be God's representatives, to be God's people in this place for his glory. And so I'm going to pray for us and then we're gonna have a couple of minutes to just allow you to reflect on God's word and then together as God's people, for those who have tasted of the grace of God and by faith have placed their confidence and their hope for eternity on the person and work of Jesus, together we're gonna to remember the faithfulness of God and the assurance he's given us through the gospel by receiving communion together. And so I'm going to pray and then we'll, and we'll respond. Father, we thank you this morning for the assurance you give us that your word is true, that you're faithful to your word, that though we may change and we may have fears and we go through cycles of doubt, Lord, you never change. There is no change in you. There's no shadow of turning with you. God, help us to stand in amazement at your continued desire and your continued willingness to show off your glory through human weakness, through vessels of weakness as we are. God, help us to keep from turning our weakness into moments for excuse, but help us to allow our weakness to become moments when you shine most brightly through us. God, use us for your glory. In the name of your son, we ask this. Amen.